Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Richard Kane shrugged his heavy wool coat on as he waited for the hotel elevator. One thing was certain. The 36-year-old hadn't missed the Chicago winters while he'd been in Mexico. But as much as he enjoyed his year-round swims, Dick had missed these sorts of clandestine meetings more. An FBI agent was waiting for him downstairs. They actually met before. Earlier that year, the two crossed paths when the G-man had tried to turn Dick into an informant for the Bureau. But Dick's position in the outfit had been too precarious. He'd already rustled too many feathers. Now that things had cooled down, though, he thought this might be his moment. Finally, Dick Kane the spy, a true double agent. Dick spotted the agent outside, both impressed and stunned at his willingness to wait out the brutal Chicago cold. It was a setup. As soon as Dick walked outside, he realized he'd misjudged the situation. Dick's stomach dropped as the agent announced, Richard Kane, you're under arrest. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our second episode about Richard Kane, an infamous Chicago police officer and mobster in the 1950s and 60s. Dick, as he was known, saw himself as an enigmatic spy. He went so far as to try to play both sides of the FBI and the CIA. This week, we'll follow Dick's later career in international espionage, where he nearly crossed paths with Fidel Castro, 
before once again returning to the mayhem of Chicago and the mob. His ties to the outfit, though, would eventually pit Dick against the very men he'd worked so hard to impress. Nineteen sixty had been a hard year for twenty-eight-year-old Dick Kane. The corrupt cop had started it as one of the most respected men in Chicago. Officially, he had just helped Assistant United States Attorney Richard Ogilvy successfully prosecute mobster Tony Accardo. Unofficially, he'd fed Ogilvy intel directly from the outfit, which guaranteed that the bulk of the Chicago mob would be safe. Even Accardo's conviction was later overturned on appeal. That success segued into Dick's next gig, spying on Mayor Richard J. Daly's personal investigator for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. But when Dick was caught and subsequently hung out to dry by everyone involved, he suddenly became a pariah in Chicago. He was both a traitor to his former police colleagues and too hot for the outfit to help. Dick needed to get out of Chicago until things cooled down. So when his mentor, mob boss Sam Giancana, called from Miami in late September offering a job down in Cuba, Dick jumped at the chance. He could leave town and get back into the work he really wanted to be doing. Dick had discovered his passion for espionage work nearly a decade earlier, when he'd been working for a Cuban-American private investigator in Miami. He'd cut his teeth making regular intelligence-gathering trips to Cuba on behalf of the soon-to-be dictator, Fulgencio Batista. The opportunity for Dick to go back to Cuba felt especially fortuitous, a second chance to fulfill his calling. This time, though, Batista wasn't the client. Nearly two years earlier, in January 1959, a revolution led by Fidel Castro had overthrown Batista's corrupt, brutal military dictatorship. The revolution had also kicked out the American mobsters who'd been in bed with Batista's government, profiting from Cuba's lucrative tourism industry. Mob bosses from New York's Maya Lansky to Chicago's San Giancana were livid. They claimed that Castro had stolen their hard-earned money. And on top of that, the U.S. government was concerned about Castro's communist politics and alliance with the Soviet Union. Rather than allow the USSR to take over the island nation, which was dangerously close to U.S. shores, the CIA made a drastic decision, get rid of Castro. The biggest obstacle, of course, was ensuring that the assassination wouldn't be traced back to them. So the CIA reached out to the group that wanted Castro gone, the mob. When Sam Giancana got the contract to assassinate Castro in September 1960, he knew just the man for the job. Dick Kane spoke Spanish, had done espionage work in Cuba, and had no qualms with murder. Dick spent most of October 1960 in Miami planning the logistics of the assassination with Giancana. The wheels churned into motion by the beginning of winter. The U.S. was on the verge of severing diplomatic ties with Cuba, and the CIA felt they were running out of time to get rid of Castro. They were willing to try anything. So sometime between November 1960 and January 1961, 
Dick Kane's plot was reportedly given the green light. According to Dick, the plan was for him and an unnamed Cuban woman to poison Castro with tiny dissolvable pills of botulinum toxin, which the CIA provided. After the pair was flown to Cuba for a few reconnaissance missions, one night that winter, they were able to attempt this plan. As Dick's version of the story goes, it was an endeavor nearly taken from a spy film. The night of the hit, the two partners snuck past the heavily armed guards and into the government building in Havana they'd been surveilling. They made it all the way into Castro's office before realizing their plan had a fatal flaw. They hadn't determined where to leave the pills to make sure Castro would actually ingest them. There was no time to decide. Someone was approaching the office, and Dick and his partner had to flee. If an American was caught trying to poison Castro, it would cause an international incident. They snuck out of the office, the pills still in their pockets. They'd nearly made it out when a guard spotted them. Fueled by adrenaline, Dick made a break for it, leaving his partner behind. It was only after Dick was out of the building that he realized she'd been caught. Dick returned to Miami uneasy. Within days, Giancana's CIA contacts relayed that his partner had been executed. The failure nearly crushed Dick. He'd been so sure that he'd made a name for himself as the spy to kill Castro. And the sobering reality of losing his colleague made him all the more ashamed. Which is why he spun the failure to Giancana as an impossible job. There would be no second attempt. Knowing the stakes, Giancana agreed that Dick shouldn't go back to Cuba. Instead, as the winter of 1961 wound on, Dick continued to build his network within the Cuban communities of both Miami and Chicago. Some of this was business for Giancana, who was still eager to recoup the money he'd lost in the Cuban tourism market. Later that summer, the 29-year-old, who, if you recall, was still claiming to be 36 at this point, decided to relocate to Mexico City, a place to start fresh and possibly to establish a PI agency. Dick had a lead on an intelligence job for the Panamanian government, and it would be easier to do it from Mexico. However, by the end of 1961, the aspirational move had failed to provide any real investigative work. To pay the bills, Dick had to work as a contractor for the Mexico City Police, training officers to use polygraph machines. He conned his way into the position thanks to his fake degrees, a PhD in psychology, and an honorary doctorate of police science. But the con wouldn't last long. Dick was caught but a few months later with a loaded firearm and fraudulent Mexican Treasury Department credentials. In June of 1962, he was swiftly deported back to the US. Once again, Dick was disgraced and undesirable. All of his work over the last year had gone up in flames. He had no choice but to crawl back to Chicago. Coming up, we'll find out how Dick levied his ability to play both sides of the law to turn his luck around. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now back to the story. In September 1962, 30-year-old Richard Kane returned to Chicago after nearly two years away. In that time, he'd attempted to assassinate Fidel Castro and spent a year in Mexico City moonlighting as an intelligence professional. However, once Dick was deported, there was nowhere to go but back home. But fatefully, the version of Chicago that Dick returned to wasn't the one he'd left. Two years ago, several of the most powerful organizations in town, the mayor's office, the police, and the state's attorney's office, hadn't wanted anything to do with him. But now, his one-time boss, federal prosecutor Richard Ogilvie, was on the verge of being elected as the Cook County Sheriff. Ogilvie was one of the few people who still regarded him well. Dick had never let him forget how well they had worked together. When Ogilvie was elected to clean up Chicago, he felt the best way to continue their anti-corruption streak was to bring Dick back onto his team as the head of a new special investigations unit. As word got around that Ogilvie was thinking of appointing Dick, rumors poured in. More whispers that Dick was a dirty cop with ties to the mob. For someone rather seasoned in crime, Ogilvie was surprisingly unshaken by them. He liked and trusted Dick based on their prior experience, and to him, that was all that mattered. And so, by the start of 1963, less than six months after being kicked out of Mexico, Dick Kane became one of the most powerful law enforcement officials in Chicago. His new special investigations unit had jurisdiction to go after vice crimes throughout the Chicagoland area, with the county's resources at their disposal if needed. For Dick, it was proving true that all roads led home to Chicago and all jobs led back to Sam Giancana. The mobster was now one of the most powerful kingpins in the entire country, which made Dick all the more eager to get back to the adrenaline-pumping days of being a double agent and the money he stood to gain working with the outfit. Dick and Giancana quickly worked out a plan. Dick was to make sure the SIU didn't touch any of Giancana's businesses. And more, anyone who wanted to run a vice operation in Chicago including gambling, prostitution, abortion, and pornography, was going to have to pay off the outfit to guarantee their safety from the Cook County Sheriff's Department. Even though the outfit was paying Dick as much as $5,000 a month, worth about $42,000 today, 
he didn't see himself as working for them. Long gone were his days of being the vice unit bagman. Now he decided who got investigated by the SIU and who had the sheriff's department on their heels. Within weeks of taking over the SIU, Dick decided to pad out his squad with his own men. Because Ogilvy trusted him, Dick was able to hire other crooked cops or guys he knew through his mob connections. Once the unit was assembled in full, it started a new routine. The SIU would stage high-profile busts, which often made Chicago's newspapers, then make sure the police reports listed far less cash than they'd actually found on the site. The rest was divided up between Dick and his team members. And Dick always reminded the criminals they busted that they owed him a payoff, or else they'd be on the outfits list as well as the sheriffs. By the spring of 1963, Dick was virtually untouchable. He was essentially a mob boss with the added might of law enforcement behind him, a more powerful version of his days on the vice squad. In addition to raids and extortion rackets, he took payments to act as protection for gambling outfits, bringing the full firepower of the sheriff's department as muscle. His position afforded him one particular advantage, the wiretapping resources of the SIU. Dick used the intel he gathered from them to help, or occasionally extort, the outfit, depending on what he needed. In doing so, he made himself an even more formidable player in Chicago organized crime. The FBI wasn't oblivious to this illegal use of resources. Agents would show up at Dick's office intermittently. Dick lived for this game, though. Each encounter was a chance to spin for the G-Men a tale of his innocence and about how he was able to get such good information through the outfit. He loved the adrenaline of getting away with a job. It reminded him of his Cuban experiences when he felt like a true spy. These days, pulling one over on the FBI was the next best thing. What Dick wasn't privy to was that the FBI had bugged one of the outfit's unofficial offices for nearly five years now since 1959. While they knew for some time that Dick was a member of the outfit, they decided that the information they gleaned from the bug was more valuable than taking him down and losing a decent source. While the visits from the Bureau's agents were intended to remind Dick that he was being watched, he simply viewed it as a continuing game of cat and mouse. Every time he felt he outsmarted the feds, he got more confident. In early 1964, though, after he'd been running the SIU for more than a year, Dick stepped too far out of line. A few months earlier, a prescription drug distributor called Zahn Drug had been robbed of as much as $250,000 of its product stock, worth over $2 million today. More likely than not, the thieves were affiliated with the outfit, which would explain why the SIU, led by Dick, hadn't reported any leads thus far. While the sheriff's office officially claimed that the SIU was still hard at work pursuing suspects, Dick saw another potential payday. He anonymously reached out to the company's insurance broker with an offer to sell the stolen drugs back to them. But when the owner of the company was hesitant to engage with his blackmailer, Dick proved impatient to get the money flowing. So he decided it was time for the case to suddenly have a breakthrough. 
One cold January night in 1964, Dick called up a few reporters. Would they be interested in riding along on a big raid he and his team were about to do? The journalists jumped at the chance, knowing Dick was always good for a story. They all headed out to the Caravelle Motel, which sat in the suburban enclave of Rosemont. Dick told them his team had reason to believe that at least some of the drugs from the Zahn robbery were being stashed in a room in the motel. There could be criminals waiting for them inside, though, he warned. The SIU men would go in first, guns at the ready. The reporters were thrilled. This was exactly the kind of heart-pounding, crime-busting adventure that would earn them front-page stories. Dick led the way, playing the role of heroic lawman perfectly. When the dust cleared, there were no dangerous criminals inside the motel room, just boxes of stolen drugs stacked up, practically waiting to be busted. For their patience, the reporters got their prize, front page pictures of Dick Kane posing next to the boxes with his submachine gun. As excited as the journalists were, Dick was even more elated. The success of the high-profile raid would once again make him a hero to the general public. And on top of that, he managed to only return about $42,000 worth of the stolen product, less than a quarter of the original haul. He'd gotten away with playing both sides yet again. His assumption was wrong. As one of the reporters was writing up his story, he decided to ask the motel who had booked the room. With a glance at the booking ledger, the journalist recognized the handwriting as belonging to one of the officers on Dick's team. The reporter knew he'd just gotten the real scoop. And when his story came out, Dick would have an awful hard time talking his way out of it. Dick was experienced at intimidating the press. In ordinary circumstances, he might have been able to make the matching handwriting problem go away. But this time, there was a second punch. The owner of the robbed company, Zahn Drug, hadn't yet decided whether to buy the drugs back from the person who'd contacted the company's insurance broker with the offer. That offer had been made before the raid, though. In light of the bust, the owner of Zahn Drug figured it might be good to talk to a lawyer about the best course of action. The lawyer he asked happened to be the Cook County State's Attorney. In the blink of an eye, the state's attorney's office was on the case. With solid proof, a dogged prosecutor, and tons of press attention, Dick realized he couldn't make the discovery go away. He told his team to stick with the defense that had worked for him all these years. Deny, deny, deny. In front of a grand jury, Dick's entire team claimed they hadn't set up the raid, that they'd been acting on intelligence when they went to the motel that night. The reporter must have been mistaken, they insisted. But the evidence suggested Dick's men were lying. A handwriting expert proved that one of the men on his team had signed for the motel room. Then, it came out that Dick had been the one to contact the insurance agent with the sellback offer. To cap it off, Sam Giancana was tied back to the whole affair too. Dick had played both sides and lost on both counts. Coming up, 
Dick Kane faces perjury charges and decades of his manipulative behavior finally catch up with him. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Now, back to the story. In 1964, Dick Kane and his Special Investigations Unit for the Cook County Sheriff's Office were caught red-handed staging a drug bust. Now, Kane and three of his men were on trial before a grand jury. Despite Dick's protests, the grand jury would indict him and his team on perjury charges. No one could prove that his team had stolen the prescription drugs, but it was clear they were lying about their involvement in the raid. In December 1964, the accused members of the SIU were convicted for perjury. And while Sheriff Ogilvie might have wished Dick's story was true and that the men would be cleared, the conviction left him with no choice but to fire the squad. To the end, Dick claimed that the state's attorney was out to get him. He never changed his position that it was all a setup. While he ultimately didn't have to serve jail time, Dick's fall from the top was fast. He'd gone from being able to bully mobsters into doing his bidding to once again serving at the feet of Sam Giancana, the only boss who still trusted him. So it was another blow when, the next year, Giancana himself was hauled in front of a grand jury on another case and subsequently thrown in jail for contempt of court. Suddenly, Dick found himself without his patrons. He still had plenty of money and connections in organized crime, but he knew his position was tenuous if he didn't figure out a new game soon. Luckily for Dick, Giancana's stint in jail was short. When he got out the next year in 1966, he offered Dick the escape he needed. While Giancana was in prison, the outfit bosses had turned on each other, filling the power vacuum he left. Upon his release, Giancana discovered that there wasn't room for him in Chicago anymore. He knew the others would literally stab him in the back if he tried to reclaim his place. At 58 years old, Giancana wasn't up for that kind of fight anymore. If he left Chicago now, he could go peacefully. So he decided to head to Mexico and asked Dick if he wanted to come along. Dick jumped at the chance. Of course he did. The two relocated to Cuernavaca, a picturesque city in south-central Mexico, and set up shop in an opulent villa. It didn't take long for them to start scheming up new plans, many of which involved setting up casinos and gambling operations. It was humble work compared to Dick's SIU days, but it kept him busy and he liked traveling. But Chicago wasn't done with him yet. As much as Dick would have preferred to stay in Mexico, Giancana still had business holdings in the Windy City, 
and the aging boss tasked Dick with checking in on them regularly. If Dick hadn't alienated himself from most of Chicago law enforcement, perhaps he would have found out before he left Mexico that winter that the feds were looking for him. Or maybe someone in the outfit would have tipped him off had he not spent his SIU days extorting and arm-bending low-level criminals. Instead, he found out when he was in town on Giancana's business in late 1967. An FBI agent named Bill Romer, who had previously tried to recruit Dick as an informant, showed up at his hotel and arrested him. Dick had no idea what he'd done. Well, at least not to warrant this particular arrest. By the time Dick went to court that winter, he learned that he was being charged over an incident that had happened nearly four years earlier while he was still running the SIU. Some low-level mob-affiliated guys had robbed a bank, and thanks to their bug, the FBI had known early on that Dick was involved. But it wasn't until one of the co-conspirators finally flipped in October 1967 that the feds finally had the proof they needed to charge him. A year later, in October 1968, Dick was convicted on three felony counts. On top of a four-year prison sentence, he was mandated to pay a $13,000 fine, worth nearly $100,000 today. For an adventurous self-aggrandizer like Dick, prison was hell. He knew mobsters were supposed to serve their time and keep their mouths shut, but he couldn't stand being stuck inside. With Giancana still in Mexico, Dick knew the outfit wasn't going to help bail him out either. There was only one card left to play, offering himself up as a double agent. That winter, from jail, Dick reached out to the U.S. Attorney General with an offer to go undercover and infiltrate organized crime rings around the country. The government saw right through Dick's offer. They knew that he fancied himself an expert in espionage. They also knew he was a compulsive liar and con man who would do and say anything to get what he wanted. But despite their hesitations, the FBI was still curious what intel they could siphon from him. A couple of prosecutors volunteered to spend an afternoon interviewing Dick in jail. Sure, his information helped them fill in a few missing pieces, but that was about it. There was no talk of sending him undercover. As he languished in prison, Dick didn't give up. If anything, he grew more delusional. He continued to strategize. If he could just get himself back in the right position in the outfit, the FBI would be convinced to activate him as an undercover operative. Three years later, in October 1971, the 40-year-old Dick was released from prison and headed straight back to Chicago. It didn't take long for him to rejoin the outfit. Despite his hot and cold relationship with the mob, through a series of heists, murders, and gambling rackets, Dick carved himself a place within the organization yet again. As Giancana's representative outside of Mexico, he would eventually start traveling internationally, establishing casinos, making real estate deals, and dabbling in heroin trafficking. But Dick still craved the double-agent life of his past. And while he no longer desired to help the FBI bring down the entire outfit, he still wanted the Bureau's resources to target his rivals and solidify his own position. 
Shortly after he was released from prison, Dick got in touch with FBI Special Agent Bill Romer, the man who'd arrested him in 1967. Dick knew it was risky, but he hoped that Romer's desire to bring down the outfit would outweigh his desire to send Dick back to prison. And he was right. Romer was tempted, but he'd need to prove Dick could be a valuable informant first. Dick didn't realize that, however interested Agent Romer was, the FBI was never going to hire him. In fact, they barely allowed Romer to maintain Dick as a paid informant at all. His information was decidedly limited in its usefulness. At the end of the day, the feds knew he was just taking them for a ride to help himself. So by December of 1973, accounts suggest that Dick was ready to go it alone in his quest to rise to the top of the outfit. He'd gotten an international network in place and felt confident he had loyal men in his corner. All he had to do was take out some rivals and he'd have the power he wanted. Confident and decisive, he decided a coordinated hit on New Year's Eve would be best in order to avoid word getting out. Then he could start 1974 with a clean slate. On December 20th, 1973, Dick went for lunch with one of those rivals, an old-time outfit guy named Marshall Caifano. The two men didn't like each other much, but knew that dealing with the other was a necessary evil. The two met at a tiny, family-run Italian restaurant at around 11.40 a.m. They discussed business for a while, and at about 12.30, Caifano asked Dick to go run a quick errand for him. An hour later, Dick cabbed it back to the restaurant and walked inside. But Caifano wasn't there anymore. Instead, the six remaining customers and staff were lined up against the back wall. Two masked men trained guns on them. As Dick walked in, one of the men whirled around, pointing a shotgun at him. Over a walkie-talkie, someone shouted, There he is! Facing the barrel of the gun, Dick knew there was no way out. He let the masked gunman usher him over to the back wall. He looked the man in the eye, knowing that his luck had finally run dry. A split second later, the buckshot ripped through Dick's head. He collapsed on the floor, dead. The gunman reached down and pulled a piece of paper out of Dick's pocket before he and his partner escaped in the car waiting out front. The men were never found, and Dick's murder was never solved. Dick Kane's death was, perhaps, inevitable, considering the recklessness and grandeur of his lifestyle. He played everyone he met, from his fellow cops to his fellow criminals. At the end of the day, it was Dick Kane against the world, always putting his own interests first. And there's only so long that a man can stab both his friends and his enemies in their backs before they turn on him. It's undeniable, though, that while it lasted, Dick's confidence landed him time and time again in extremely powerful positions. He certainly made himself a somewhat wealthy man at every turn of his career as a cop and pseudo-mob informant. As someone who lived for adrenaline and adventure, it's hard to imagine he'd have wanted it any other way.
thanks again for listening to Kingpins. For more information on Richard Kane, amongst the many sources we used, we found Michael J. Kane's book, The Tangled Web, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Kingpins was written by Kate Thorman, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Murden. Kingpins.